Hello and welcome. My name is Shelley Shanfield and I'm a member of the League of Women Voters, Washtenaw County. We would like to welcome you to our series of programs focusing on criminal justice reform. This program, Policing the Police, is part of the series. To begin, a bit about us. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan voter education organization encouraging informed, active participation in government. We believe that voting is a fundamental citizen right that must be guaranteed. While the League does not support candidates or parties, we do take positions on issues we have studied. Our programs will not necessarily represent these positions, but provide forums to increase understanding of public policy issues. Washington Post's Fatal Force Database, which started tracking police shootings in 2015, shows that since then, an average of 1,000 people a year have fatal encounters with the police. The group Mapping Police Violence claims that since 2013, 98.3% of officers involved in such killings, including those deemed justified, have not been charged with a crime. Often the investigations of such shootings are conducted by the very department in which the shooter is employed. And it's fair to ask how those investigations can be truly unbiased and complete. In November of 2014, Ann Arbor police were called to the home of Ora Rosser, a black woman who was arguing with her boyfriend. When two officers entered her home, she approached them holding a knife. One officer fired his taser, the other fired his gun, killing Ms. Rosser. The county prosecutor did not bring charges, concluding the officer had acted in self-defense. A subsequent ACLU report on the incident expressed concern about how the incident was handled. The report gave recommendations for changes, including review by independent prosecutors not working closely with the local police whose conduct they are investigating, and new training protocols for police officers on the use of force and dealing with citizens who suffer from mental illness. One other change that the ACLU could have added is establishing a police oversight commission. And in 2019, the Ann Arbor city government did just that. In 2000, there were a there were 100 police oversight bodies across the U.S. In 2019, there were 66, 166, most of those 66 established in the last few years. How do those bodies work? Do they accomplish their goals? We're fortunate to have the chair of the Ann Arbor Police Oversight Commission, Dr. Lisa Jackson, here with us today to explore such questions. As chair of the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission, the ICPOC, Dr. Jackson leads the civilian team whose tasks include reviewing the complaints about the AAPD, examining policies such as use of force, and advising the city government and community on community interaction and training. She is also a member of the Michigan Commission on Law Enforcement Standards, MCOLS, where she is involved in matters pertaining to the mental health selection and licensing of police officers and she has a day job. Currently a professor of psychology at Schoolcraft College, Dr. Jackson brings a wealth of expertise and experience to these volunteer positions. To list a few of her accomplishments, she holds a PhD in biological psychology from the U of M with a focus on behavioral neuroscience. 
She has worked with the Office of Health Equity and Inclusion at Michigan Medicine to facilitate the transfer of underrepresented community college students to the U of M and ultimately to medical school. She served as president of the board of directors of Ozone House in Ann Arbor. In addition, Dr. Jackson is a Ford Foundation Fellow, a Society for Neuroscience Fellow, a Harry S. Truman Scholar, and a recipient of the American Psychological Association Fellowship in Neuroscience. Dr. Jackson, welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and to talk about our work. Um, I thought that I would start out talking a little bit about how we got started. I want to take us back a little bit before the formation of our commission. And I'm, I'm sure most of you know that in August of 2014, Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And the officer not being indicted and the circumstances of the shooting were of some great, um, you know, there, were, there were, were protests and demonstrations in Ferguson for a long time. And and as you've heard today, you also know that later that year in November, Ann Arbor resident Ora Rosser was shot and killed by an Ann Arbor Police Department. Um, I think one of the, the details that's salient and important that we sometimes don't think about um, is the fact that she was killed in approximately 37 seconds of that officer arriving at the scene. Um, and you, I'm sure you know about the likely, the, 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 all of the resulting community protests in Ann Arbor around the incident and around how it was handled. But what you might not know is, it, is that that incident was especially painful to many members of the community because shortly after Michael Brown's killing in August of 2014, a group of citizens went to the Ann Arbor police chief, who was John Cito at that time, and expressed an interest in working with him to prevent such a thing from happening in Ann Arbor. And they report that um, you know, they feel like he pretty much brushed off their concerns. And one person reported to me that he said such a thing could never happen in Ann Arbor. So then when Ora Rosser was shot and killed um, three months later to the day of the Michael Brown killing, they felt the pain of that loss, but also that their efforts at prevention were unsuccessful. And so that was especially problematic for them. And that was part of the considerable outrage that was felt by many types of people in our community. Um, so, um, City Council was then inspired to give the Human Rights Commission the charge to determine whether a task force should be convened, and they did, and then they convened a task force to determine whether oversight was needed. Um, Dwight Wilson, whom some of you may know um, from the community, sort of led that charge and flew all over the country to look at different oversight models. And, and was sitting on the Human Rights Commission and became a part of the task force along with many other community um, members. And so that task force did a lot of work in 2018 to study different models and make recommendations about everything from um, the number of people to how a commission should be funded and how independent it should be. And then they um, submitted all their findings in an ordinance. Um, it turned out that the city then decided to rewrite their own ordinance and that was passed in late 2018 and then in march of 2019 we were um, sworn in onto the new independent community police oversight commission um, so several of us took it upon ourselves to get trained 
Um, there is something called the National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement. Its acronym is NACOL. And um, they are sort of the, the organizing body for all civilian oversight in the country. And they offer trainings and they offer certifications and they have an annual conference and uh, you can go and learn about experts, but they also have training uh, throughout the year. It's open to anyone. You don't even have to be a member to participate. Some of the sessions cost as little as $3. Some of them are free and, 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 and everything is open to the public even if you're not a member. Um, and so I was able to work for about 18 months to become a certified practitioner of oversight. And there are several other commissioners who are um, on that path as well and will likely be certified by the end of that year. And so that included for me about 100 hours of live training, um, large amounts even for me <laughs> of reading case law and peer reviewed articles on oversight and books on oversight and policing in America. So. Um, I think one of the, the, the misconceptions we wanted to make sure people didn't have is that we were sort of just a bunch of citizens who had opinions about police who were gonna sit around and judge them. Um, you know, oversight actually has sort of principles and philosophies and um, we try to follow those. And, um, you know, we talk about being efficacious and, um, being independent and having a clearly defined and adequate jurisdiction and authority. And um, another of those sort of guidelines is that oversight needs to have unfettered access to records and facility. They need to have access to law enforcement executives and internal affairs staff. They need cooperation. That's number five. I think that could be number one. Sustained stakeholder support. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm always grateful to go out and talk to people because we need the public to understand what we do and to support what we do and to um, support our effective work. And we want to make sure that we don't have oversight in name only, that we actually have some oversight. And by no means do I ever think that oversight alone can solve the problems of policing. I absolutely do not believe that. I think we are a piece of the puzzle to that. Um, our commission is very diverse in terms of age, in terms of previous experiences. But I think the thing that binds us is that all of us are absolute true believers in the promise of police oversight to improve the relationships between the community and the police. Now that gets sticky for student council, for, for uh, city council, I'm sorry, because um, one of the things that happens is there is some pushback because there are times when there are things that we are suggesting that would suggest that the culture of policing in Ann Arbor should change. And of course, um, I don't think I'm going on a limb to say that um, many police officers, not all, but many, and certainly the position of the police union is that things are fine as they are. And you guys probably know that the police union has made their position clear in several letters that they've written before we were seated and while we were seated. And they regularly write letters and emails to city council about why I in particular should be fired. Um, and so um, the, the, that causes some consternation in that, you know, council feels like, well, you're, you know, this is not good. This is stirring up lots of controversy and the police don't like you. And so you're not improving, you know, the, the situation between the community and the police. I think those things are things that are going to come with oversight. When I talk to my peers across the country, um, that kind of behavior from police unions, big and small, is absolutely typical. 
Um, there are published articles on that kind of behavior. And so when we think about improving the interactions between the community and police, we don't think about that. Um, we try to think about that in terms of actionable, measurable, specific outcomes. And I like to focus on two things. And the first of those is transparency. If we could have a more transparent police department, then more citizens could know more things about the police department. And you may be very happy with what you find out. So I think transparency is a good thing. I think um, overall, we have a good police department. Do we have problems? Absolutely. But I think we're starting from a good place. Um, but I think transparency is necessary. Transparency is very uncomfortable in, in probably many industries, but policing is one of those kind of last holdouts where the police have been able to police themselves. And so it, throughout the history of Ann Arbor, when people have a complaint about the police, they go to the police to make the complaint. <laughs> so they complain to the police about the police. The police take the complaint, investigate the complaint, and then report back to the complaint about whether their complaint was sustained or not. I don't think that's the ideal model for complaints. I think an outside party might be um, a little bit more neutral, a little bit more objective, and might represent citizens' interests a little bit better. And so that's one of the things we try to do. Um, and so reviewing citizen complaints is certainly one of the things that we do. When a citizen files a complaint today, they can do so by going to the police. We strongly suggest though, that you go to our website to do that. And there are several reasons for that. One, if you happen to call the police department to make a complaint, you have to rely on the person taking your complaint to record that accurately. And while police are trained to take accurate statements, they may be busy, the person who is taking your complaint may be trying to multitask, um, or they may not understand exactly what the nature of your complaint is. If you make a complaint with the Independent Community Police Oversight Commission, you can do that on the phone with our administrator whose job is to take those complaints. But you can also do that on our website where you can type exactly what you mean. And then when the complaint gets investigated, we don't have any questions about what the complainant is complaining about. Um, another advantage is that people can complain anonymously. And that means that if they observe something um, that they'd like to report, they want to investigate it, they can do so that way. Um, you can also have a third party make a complaint on your behalf because there are times when people fear retribution. Um, and so there are many ways to do that if people make complaints through our organization. I think that's an improvement. Because of the way the ordinance was written, no matter how people make complaints, the police department and their professional standards department and team of people will do the investigation. And after they have concluded it, in most cases, there are a couple exceptions to that, um, then we get to review that. So we look at all of their documents, we look at their reports, we look at body cam footage and dash cam footage, and then we have a discussion with them, uh, an actual conversation, our team of complaint reviewers and or that are called information managers, and AAPD leadership, um, including professional standards, often deputy chiefs and the police chief are in the meeting as well. And we have a conversation about particular cases and what we've seen. And we ask lots of questions. Um, if there are, are terms, for example, that we don't understand or terms that might seem to be not congruent with, with what happened, we ask about those. And then we ultimately sort of issue a report.
One of the challenges we have though, is when people complain to the police, the city attorney's office has decided that we don't necessarily get to know their names. And so we actually have no way of responding to many people to let them know how we investigated their complaint and what we thought about their complaint, whether it concurs or disagrees with the police. And that's a big challenge for us. And so we are trying to figure out um, how to work around that. We have asked that the police supply information about how to contact us. Um, it's challenging to know um, the language that they were using. Um, I did not think was appropriate. And so we had to revise that. And so it's not clear, um, you know, sort of how well that's working since that policy has been implemented. We have not received one contact um, from a person who's had a complaint from, the, uh, you know, resolved or not resolved by the police. So I think we may have some work to do in that area. But when people complain with us, we know exactly who they are and they can tell us how much communication they'd like from us, in what manner they'd like the information communicated from us. Um, there's no way, um, we, we don't publish people's names, for example. So if you have a complaint with us, we don't put that in MLive. We don't um, share reports with people's names on them to the public, for example. Um, and so um, we are able to communicate with people. In many cases, we're able to ask them follow-up questions, things like that. And so that helps us often, and sometimes it helps the police too, when we go back and we ask questions and we provide additional information. So I think reviewing citizen complaints is important, but that is sort of trying to address a problem after it's happened, right? And so um, I think one of the things that we do that is more important is focus on policy. And so I see a question in the chat from uh, <laughs> Professor Karpiak who's talking about the promise of oversight. Um, and I think one of the things well, in Ann Arbor in 2021, I think the primary um, benefit of having oversight is that we have the ability to shine a light on things that haven't been seen before. Um, we have the ability to focus on policy and we have the ability to perhaps make some changes that are preventative and make improvements to a system that um, can prevent some complaints from happening. Um, and so when I lived in Washington, DC, I did a lot of public policy analysis around public health and substance abuse. And so this is something that I'm very sort of passionate about. We get to have some influence on training, for example. Um, on diversity initiatives as um, was stated in the question. Um, we have had some influence on de-escalation training and there was a new training that was rolled out and I be think it began in May, but by the end of June, I believe all Ann Arbor Police Departments were retrained and it was a mandatory retraining for them um, in terms of de-escalation tactics. I will say that one of the things that I have started talking about in forums such as these at city council and with the police department is that the de-escalation training that most police officers get in the United States is about how to de-escalate suspects or citizens or potential people with whom they come in contact. What is lacking, however, are programs to de-escalate the police themselves. And while I'm sure most of you have had encounters with police who were calm, cool, and collected, there are far too many examples of police who actually get themselves escalated by their interactions with civilians. 
And so if any of you have had the opportunity to see um, the video of Sandra Bland, who was pulled over for failing to signal and later ended up dead in the police station, um, the officer is giving her a number of commands at a time and she's sort of asking him which things she should do. He's also telling her things like stop smoking and other things that she doesn't have to do. And, you know, she's going back and forth with him and he is getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And I was watching this film with some police officers in a training. We actually were able to go through their de-escalation training as well. They did a session for us. And I asked the, the sergeant in charge, so what could Sandra Bland have done to prevent him from the behaviors that ultimately ended in her death? And he said, absolutely nothing. That police officer was getting escalated. He was working alone and there wasn't any way to de-escalate him. So I think is is very clear. This is one example of many that police officers also need de-escalation training. I know that one of the things that police officers say, and you've probably heard this, is that you know they want to get home safely at the end of the day, and so that that has other impacts for civilians as well. But part of that comes from the fact that um, police perceive their job to be very very dangerous. When in fact, it is not among the 15 highest, most dangerous jobs. It is um, less lethal than being a pizza delivery driver, for example. I, and these stats are easily available online. What is, I think, most striking for me, and particularly as a psychologist, is that police officers are significantly more likely to die by suicide than they are by a civilian. And yet mental health training, that kind of de-escalation, that kind of proactive stress reduction is not something that's incorporated into most police departments. And so in Ann Arbor, we have a psychological services that police officers can request to use if they like, but there is no mandatory training on how to deescalate yourself, how to reduce stress um, in your life in general. You may know that the rates of other kinds of uh, things like alcoholism are predominantly higher in um, policing than some other professions. Um, and so those are kinds of things that actually working on the mental health of police officers helps keep communities safe. Um, and so those kinds of conversations are things that happen because you have oversight that don't happen otherwise, because these are not things that police are raising. Police don't um, have not been particularly forthcoming about talking about police suicide. And yet um, it is, it, it is a, a part of the profession. It has happened in Ann Arbor. It, it recently happened with someone who had worked um, at Schoolcraft um, and was working as a police officer in another municipality. And so police suicides happen. Um, and we need to talk about that. And we need to talk about how the fact that um, keeping officers safe psychologically also keeps the community safe. Um, and so when we talk about policy, um, we're not just talking about, you know, sort of what happens after the fact. We're talking about um, how to look at the use of force. For example, can we build in a mandatory um, justification for escalation to the next use of force? So, for example, if a police officer asks you to do something and you don't do it and you lie down on the ground, that is considered resisting. Um, and so they are allowed to use a certain level of force. In some communities, there is a mandatory next step um, that has to happen before they can escalate their use of force, such as maybe grabbing you and moving you away. And that is something that we could introduce in Ann Arbor. So there's something called a continuum of use of force that says what they can do to a person when, but um, there is no clear de-escalation that's required in between each step. And so one thing that would be a great improvement is to say, hey, before you go up to the next step, 
you have to show on your body cam footage how you de-escalated between each step how you were able to use that before you escalated your use of force. And so oversight talks about those kinds of things. We can bring them to the attention of city council. We can talk about them with the police chief. We can bring them to the attention of the public such that people are can demand changes. Um, you know, we have to have some substantive input on disciplinary po policy. Um, we've got to have some substantive input on um, talking about de-escalators, the use of first responders. And so um, one of the things that we've been doing this year is working with a wide spectrum of people from public health officials to criminologists, to um, religious leaders, to other people in the community on unarmed public safety responses and sort of trying to separate fact from fiction and how those are used. Um, in fact, the School of Public Health, and I'll try to find this link, um, actually is um, putting on a program in August um, about, and it's showing three different models, three different cities who incorporated um, unarmed response into their public safety plan. In fact, San Francisco's own police union voted several months ago to allow an unarmed public response as well. And so, what does that mean? If you have a mental health call, for example, if you have a person who is suicidal, um, do you need to send an armed responder to that person? Probably not. We have seen cases in Michigan. There was a family uh, who called police because a son had a knife at his throat. When the officers arrived and demanded that he drop the knife, he did not, and they shot and killed the young man. That is not what anyone wants. The police don't want that. Citizens don't want that. Families don't want that. Um, and so, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that we need to think about. When someone has an overdose, do you need to send an officer with a gun for that? Um, and, and so we need to really look critically at when we need armed responses and when we don't. Traffic stops are the number one way in which people come in contact with police in this country. Um, and so one of the ways that we could look at traffic stops is by analyzing traffic stop data. So, um, uh, Professor Karpiak, would you type the name of your organization in the chat for me? Because I never get it right. The acronym is SMART. It's located at Eastern Michigan University, but our commission has partnered with them and the police recently turned over some data um, to the SMART team to analyze traffic stops in Ann Arbor. And so there are lots of questions we could ask. Are young people stopped more than old people? Are um, people stopped in one neighborhood more than another? Um, are people let off, are women let off with a warning more than men are? Um, lots of different questions. So we have an anonymized uh, data set and we'll, we're, um, SMART is looking at data from 2017, 2018 and 2019. And so um, it's the Southeast Michigan Criminal Justice Policy Research Project. Thank you. And thank you for the link. at at Eastern Michigan, and they have taken on the Herculean task of, of sort of combing through this data and doing some analysis for us. And then we can begin to ask questions based on what we see in the data. Um, and we can ask questions about, should we have an unarmed traffic response? If a person fails to signal, do you need an armed responder to pull them over and give them a ticket? Because failing to signal is not a criminal offense, it's a civil infraction. Um, it is, you know, akin to, you know, not paying your taxes or some other kind of civil infraction. It's not a criminal, uh, uh, you know, charge. 
So much like we have parking enforcement, could you have traffic enforcement in that way? This is not to say that armed police can't chase bank robbers or carjackings or, um, you know, if we happen to have those in Ann Arbor, certainly they would be able to do that. But for things like failing to signal, having your headlight out, um, are, you know, are there, are, could we utilize unarmed responders for that? Um, and so these are questions that we ask and these are things on which we're working and we were able to, to, to sort of influence city council to make that request. And so the mayor made a request that the city administrator come up with a plan by December for an unarmed response that would look at um, things like mental health, traffic stops, um, other kinds of calls that could perhaps be answered by people who do not have guns. I don't know if you know people who have been involved in drug use, but I have talked to people who have had friends or have themselves had an overdose. And there are often times that if police respond to those, then they feel very intimidated and afraid by the presence of the person with the gun, even while they're waiting for EMS. And so is that necessary? Is that a best use of our resources? And so these are things that we ask. Can we safely use unarmed responders in some cases while you use armed police for other things? Um, I think um, most of us think that it's a good idea to decrease the contact with armed police as much as possible. And I do understand that many people have had encounters with police that are only charming and lovely, or maybe you've never had, um, you know, a, a, an encounter with the police. And, and, and I wanna say too here that almost that, that almost all of the complaints we've ever gotten are not from criminals. I think when this process started, people thought criminals would be complaining about the way police treated them. And that is not the bulk of cases we have at all. The vast, vast, vast majority are um, complaints from regular everyday people who experience something or observe something that they believe to be inappropriate treatment from police. And that, you know, from intimidation to sexual harassment to things like that. And so these are just regular Ann Arbor citizens who are complaining about police. And so I think all of us should care about oversight. You know, even if your interactions have been fantastic, um, it's important to know that many people, young people, people of color of all ages, oftentimes women, lower income people, undocumented people, other people, random people, um, parents who've had children in car accidents, for example, um, have had interactions that feel intimidating or harassing. And if any of us can be treated in those ways, then it can happen to any of us. And so we want, um, you know, we certainly want to shine a light on that behavior. We want to put processes in place that allow uh, that de decrease those kinds of interactions and maybe give police resources to use other tools other than those. Those kinds of behaviors actually interfere with police work as well, interfere with their ability to collect information, interfere with their ability for the community to trust them. And so literally two weeks ago, I got a call from a person who said, I'm driving down Plymouth Road. There's a young African-American man who looks like he's maybe young African-American guy who looks like he's like 19 or so. And he has no shirt on, no shoes on. And he's walking down the sidewalk, but he occasionally weaves towards the street. And I'm concerned and I'd like to call the police, but I'm really worried. What if they manhandle him? What if they, and that person was literally afraid to call the police. And so this is a situation where he needed someone to call, but was worried about an armed response to that situation. And so these things are not theoretical. They really happen. And people in the city are actually concerned about them. Um, 
you all probably know that in November, late November of last year, the police had a 911 call for a home invasion. And they went to the wrong address and they broke into the wrong house, guns drawn, a SWAT team member broke into the house with the person's permission. So the person said, they said, can we break into your house? The person said, please, please, please. I hear a person, I'm very terrified, please come. And they said, we're here, can we break in? And so they broke into the house, they crept up the stairs, guns drawn, SWAT team member in the lead. And it turned out they were in the wrong house. There were two women who were in the house at the time and they were asleep. And fortunately they did not jump up and they were not injured. That was an accident. Um, and ultimately other police were dispatched to the other home to help the other person resolve what was going on at their house. Um, and so these people had never had any adverse interactions with the police, but they did on that day just because of an accident. One of the problems with this case is that it wasn't immediately revealed to anyone. Um, the because the door had been broken in, a uh, maintenance person was called to repair it and a police officer stayed there until the door was repaired, which happened the next morning. This call came about 11.30 at night, I think. And then um, when the person called the police department to get reimbursed, he was told there's no police report. There's nothing, nothing happened at that address. I don't know what you're talking about. The guy was like, look, there were at least, you know, five, six officers here and this door is broken. I fixed it, I need to get paid. And that sort of spurred a chain of events where ultimately this, this situation was revealed. Um, but it was not disclosed and that morning's, um, I'm sorry, it does not appear, it was not reported that it was disclosed at that morning's sort of uh, command transfer meeting. Um, and when the ladies filed a lawsuit in January is the first time that many of us found out about it, um, including some officials in the city, including some officials in the police department. And so while this was an accident and was horrific and what we'd like is some accountability, we'd like you to explain how you went to the wrong house and explain how you make sure that that is less likely to happen in the future. We think that's reasonable. So if we had found out about it in the beginning, we would have said that. This is terrible. Those women are probably traumatized. Um, but how can you make sure that this won't happen again? What steps can you take? What things can you do better? Do you need better GPS? Do you need better communication? Um, what do we need to make sure that you don't do this again or that it's very, very, very unlikely it will ever happen again? Um, but, but that's not what happened. And so then there was a lawsuit. The city ended up paying this money. I believe they went into closed session, I think in February or March, I'm not sure of the date, but it's obviously in the city records and they paid these people um, a settlement. Um, and so my worry is that this wasn't very forthcoming, right? This was an accident. It was horrific. It could have been deadly. It was not. We are very lucky that no one, no young person was there and jumped up thinking someone was breaking into their house. We're very lucky that the person with the home invasion was not injured by an intruder. Um, and so I think had this, had they been very forthcoming and said, hey, this thing happened. We're sorry. It's terrible we're working on fixing it, we would have said, this is awful and we wanna see what steps you're taking to remedy this, but that's not how that happened. Um, and so we know we still have some work to do. So I talk a lot about transparency and being able to see things, um, but I think accountability is that next step. When things go badly, and they do from time to time, 
We want the police to be accountable, accountable to the citizens and residents and workers and visitors of Ann Arbor. We want the police to say, we did this thing, here's how we're going to prevent the mistake and how we're gonna improve it going forward, how we're gonna be less likely to make that mistake again. And we are not there yet. Um, there are times that we sit in complaint review meetings and we are watching a policy be broken. And um, we ask about the discipline that was handed out such that the behavior would decrease. And when there's no discipline, we ask why. And police discipline is very tricky. Police will say and have said, you know, you're, you don't walk in our shoes, you can't discipline us. And that's, it, it is, I don't think we need to walk in their shoes to do that, but we do not discipline police. The police discipline the police. However, police discipline happens less than we would like and less than we think is reasonable. And there are times when we ask about the lack of discipline and we are not given an answer. And, and I don't mean we're not given a satisfactory answer. What I mean is I have been in a room with other oversight professionals and police leadership, and we have seen a person break a particular policy and they have, we have asked why were they not disciplined for, for example, not having their body cameras on at the beginning of a service call. And they cannot explain to us why that officer was not disciplined. And so there's no transparency there, but there's also no accountability. And so a psychology would suggest that if you don't get disciplined, you would feel free to repeat that behavior, right? And so um, the person, uh, a person lodged a complaint and we went to review the body cam footage and some of that footage was missing. And so the, the person also requested to see the body cam footage and was terrified saying, what if I had been so startled by them that I had run? And this person wasn't doing anything wrong. They weren't the subject of anything, but the police approached them and they felt very uncomfortable. And they said, what if I had run? And um, something bad had happened to me. None of that would have been on camera. And that is true. And I think what happens is we get lucky and then things don't seem as bad as they are. Um, and so I think it's important for us to start to pay attention. It's hard to know what we don't know, right? It's very hard. But I think, so for example, East Lansing had a case where there was a young man who got harassed by a police officer and he asked, how many other people has this police officer harassed? And the police department said, we will not release personnel records. We won't release any complaints. We won't tell you that. And the young man sued. He was represented by the ACLU, some of whom are member ACLU of Michigan, some of whom are here in Ann Arbor. And they won their lawsuit. And so now in the city of East Lansing, all police complaints are public. So the young man did not get paid. What he, what he did was all police complaints are now visible to the public. And you can go in East Lansing and look and see how many complaints you know, Joe Smith has, how many complaints Bob Smith has against him. Um, and there are many, many cities where there are dashboards of complaints against police. And you can see that this person has an average number that this person doesn't. Some of you probably saw the article in, in Detroit a couple of days ago about one officer who had 85 complaints against him, which is about 10 times more than the average, and that they all seem to follow a pattern. But over the years, he had not been disciplined. Um, and the complaints had largely been ignored and there was never any evidence of the complaints, even though there were often multiple people and they corroborated each other's stories, the officer was not um, disciplined. Um, we don't know if we have that in Ann Arbor. It does not appear that we do at this point, but I think there are, are too many things that we don't know. And that sort of speaks to the transparency. We'd like to know um, 
how many complaints each officer has. We had to fight until earlier this year just for us to be able to see the police officers' names in complaints. And so you might have heard me going around town saying if we have 20 complaints, we don't know if they're from one person who has 20 complaints or 20 different unique officers who have complaints. And those are two very different problems. And so until early this year, we were not even able to see the names of, of police who had had complaints against them. So um, it, it's been a little bit of a battle to get to where we are today, where at least now we can see that. And, and even more recently, we began to see, they decided to tell us whether discipline had been handed out and um, what it was even, which is actually all new. So um, one question is how effective are citizen oversight committees across the country? Um, it depends on what your metric is. I think um, if you look at whether they change police behavior, they don't tend to change police behavior unless they have some very specific components. And that means that they have um, some ability to influence police processes that's a very tough road to hoe because police unions are pretty powerful and are going to resist that. And the interaction between police unions and elected officials is very tricky and I understand very scary for some politicians. Um, however, if you measure things in terms of transparency or accountability, then you can see that civilian oversight is, 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 is more effective. Um, when you begin to see policies, so for example, now you can go on the Ann Arbor Police Department's website and you can click and you can see many of their policies. The, all of their policies are not online yet. They have more to come and we've seen, we've, we've seen some documentation that says that will happen by August. Um, it's later than we expected, but their policies have been pretty opaque and even the policies themselves haven't been online. And so now that will happen. Um, and so when you begin to see things like there were X numbers of calls for service in Ann Arbor and this number of complaints in Ann Arbor for 2020, then we will begin to see some of the effects of oversight in terms of more information to more numbers of people. Now, everybody doesn't want this information and that's fair, but if you did want it, could you access the information? Um, absolutely, um, there's a clause in the uh, police officers, the, um, the patrol officers contract that says that um, personnel information can only be disclosed to the city manager, HR, and police staff. And so the city had to determine that disclosing those names to us was um, a greater public need. And they did ultimately determine that. Um, but the union you know, fought that at every turn. And you know, I'm sure they feel like that's their job to fight that. Um, but we can't tell you who those people are. So there was no, there is no dashboard for Ann Arbor that says, you know, Joe Smith has this many complaints because right now we're not allowed to tell you who those officers are. Um, so the sheriff's department has something called cable. Um, and I don't remember the acronym, what the acronym stands for, I'm sorry. Um, that sort of does oversight for them, but it is, um, it's sort of set up by the sheriff's department. So it isn't completely independent of them. We have absolutely no jurisdiction over any police agency other than um, Ann Arbor. Um, so for example, in Saline is their oversight, Pittsfield Township, Ypsilanti City, Ypsilanti Township. I think Ypsilanti City has a small board as well. Um, but what happens I think oftentimes is that the work is arduous. It's very hard to do. It is good to be a volunteer 
Um, it, it, it's a lot of work. I think my vice chair and I work about 40 hours a week during this work. And so it's, it's very tough to do this unpaid. However, um, other, it's not inaccessible to other people because other people don't have to work that much on our commission. We really sort of pull together and lots of people do lots of different kinds of work. But it is, it is probably helpful that we're not paid because we're not beholden to the city, for example. And so that does give us at least some psychological independence. We do depend on the city for a budget. Um, we do depend on the city for its cooperation. Um, if we scare city council too much, like there, there are two complaints, too many complaints against me, they're like, Lisa, you're terrifying everyone. Um, and, and, you know, and, and we don't, you know, you have to, to stop, you have to, you have to be nicer. Why are you always complaining? Why are you always, you know, fussing at city council? Um, then probably we don't get, you know, as much cooperation. And so it's a very fine line to walk. But I think um, we really believe in what we do and we're gonna try to do the right thing no matter what. So even if people get angry at us, even if the union sends more complaining emails about us, I'm still gonna be out here talking about unarmed traffic enforcement and transparency and why we don't have documents. And so I think I spoke at the June city council meeting and the July city council meeting. And I said, hey, we asked the police for very simple information. We asked them how many calls for service did you have in 2019 and 2020? How many times did people call 911 for help? How many times did they call your desk for help? Not for directions, not for information, but just for help. We wanna know how many calls there were. We don't have that information. And so then I filed a freedom of information request for it. I said, clearly nobody's gonna give us this information unless we do that. Um, we still don't have that information. So sometimes it is like pulling teeth. Um, I think we're kind of used to that. So we will eventually get the information we need one way or another, um, but it's just challenging to do so. I think it helps citizens though in the end because we will be able to show all of this information. You know, the police indicate that they're gonna make their own dashboard um, and that's great. But I think people wanna see an independent one that sort of talks about some things maybe from just a number standpoint and not with, with any spin. Um, there is, um, thank you, Shelly, for your question. We asked and city council also asked, two city council members asked the police department if there was any evidence of any and our police department personnel participating in the events in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And the answer we got was that, um, because of labor law, the police cannot ask the officers that. But we were also assured that the FBI was looking at Ann Arbor as it did many, many other municipalities. And if there was anyone in the AAPD who, has, who was found to have participated, then we would find out after the FBI released that information. And one quote I got from a police official was that the FBI would take their gun and badge and call AAPD and tell them to come pick it up. And that's when they would find out. So thus far that has not happened. So we do not have any indication that anyone physically participated in the events of January 6th in DC. Um, so I think if I could leave you with some take home thoughts um, and then you guys should ply me with more questions. Um, I think oversight is important because it can be sort of um, a spearhead for getting more information and for shining a light on some areas that have been very closed off to the public. Um, 
police and police recruiters talk about um, how hard it is to be a police officer today and how much they are criticized. And what happens is that makes police feel more insular and insulated and they can only trust each other and that makes them less likely to share information. And so it's even tougher to get information out of police departments today, but it's probably more critical. We need to know how many calls for service there were. We need to be able to say how many times, so every time an officer pulls his gun in a way that any civilian can see it, there is a form that needs to be filed. Um, and we would like to know how many times that form was filed, for example, every year. We have some worries because there appears to be evidence that at least in the case of um, the incident in November, that form was not filed, which leads me to ask how many other times are guns drawn on people and that form is not filed. But that's you know a theoretical question we, we won't know the answer to. But you need to know how many times did Ann Arbor police officers pull their guns on people in Ann Arbor in 2020. And so we are the people asking those questions. We're the people who continue to knock on the door and, and get that kind of information and can share that information um, and build our own dashboard so that people can just click a link and find out things that they want to know about the police. Um, and so I think that is one of the primary uses. It's also uh, oversight is also you know, we do get down in the weeds and we think about lots of details about policing in a way that city council cannot, frankly. I mean, they have to think about the dioxane plume and and whether Airbnbs are gonna be okay and the expansion of housing and they have many, many, many things on their plates. And so if we can be a reliable source of police information, that means that when they have questions about policing, of course they ask the police chief, but they also ask about the implications of that on oversight. And several of the newer city council people actually ran on platforms that talked about more transparency and accountability for policing. And so that is a goal of several city council members. And so um, we know that more information will aid everybody in making their decisions. Um, whether that is city council making decisions about funding and policy, whether that's the police department beginning to think about how they could better serve the mental health needs of their police officers, whether that's the public wanting to know information, basic information about how many 911 calls were there, how many times were police dispatched, for example, for a robbery, how many of those were there in Ann Arbor? Um, how many times did you arrive to find out, whoops, no, it wasn't really a robbery kind of thing. Um, and so we are the people who are asking those kinds of really boring, mundane questions. And, um, but we do think that that's really, really useful for the public. And so I think oversight is very useful in that way. And then we have seen the needle begin to move. Um, we had asked to be able to review the police union contract because that's about the only way you can make any headway into police behavior is when things are in the contract. And we were told no. And then after George Floyd was killed, um, that following Monday, the mayor called and asked if we would like to see it. And we said, absolutely. And so now we have the ability to review the police contract. And in fact, um, we asked the city council to delay the vote on approving the contract because we hadn't had a chance to review it yet and would like to. And we did actually make some, some requests and the negotiators went in and asked for things. I think we had a very tiny win in that uh, police have what's called progressive discipline, which means that when there is a 
they have a discipline problem, their previous behavior gets evaluated as well. And that behavior time was a few months and we got that extended. Um, one of the things I wanna to say too is that police file complaints against each other and we do not have any jurisdiction over reviewing those. And there's some indication that the complaints that police file against each other are more numerous than the ones that citizens file against them. And so it's very interesting. Um, there was an article in Washtenaw Community College's paper where a lieutenant was quoted as saying the percentage of cases that were sustained when officers file complaints against each, against each other is much higher than when citizens file them against them, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, I think, um, so Laura has a question about um, the stance that police take in terms of how they approach their jobs, taking on a more militaristic approach um, where citizens are potential enemies versus the guardian approach where they see their roles as um, serving citizens. And yes, we've had those conversations. And actually one of the things that I'm grateful for, if you ever get a chance um, to read it, I'll type this in the chat. There's a book called Tangled Up in Blue and it's by Rosa Brooks. And some of you might know her mom, she did, um, she, she wrote a book, Nickled and Dimed, and her mom spent some time working for minimum wage to show that it wasn't sustainable to work 40 or 50 hours a week. And anyway, and so Rosa was um, a professor, um, and I believe she did work on genocide in, in other countries. And then she became a professor in law school at Georgetown. And then she joined the Washington, D.C. Police Department because they have a program where you can do that and you go through police academy training and everything. And she talks about that experience in her book. And one of the things that really resonated with me is she talks about that police officers want to go home at the end of the day, because this is drilled into police officers in academies near and far, and that they're in constant danger. And what that does is several things. One, I believe that it makes police afraid of very simple civilian encounters, but it also influences their willingness to defend themselves. And she poses something that I is a huge idea, which is really tough and may never change in my lifetime. But right now, in many jurisdictions, if a police officer has a reasonable suspicion that you have a gun, they can shoot you. If it later turns out to be a cell phone that you had in your hand, they're really sorry. But that means that we are forgetting that <laughs> citizens have the right to go home at the end of the day that police are bearing less of the risk in those situations than citizens are. If, um, you know, police have chosen their profession, they get paid to do their profession. And so perhaps that risk should be distributed differently. Perhaps the risk should be 60-40 for the police or 75-25 or some ratio that, you know, it's not for me to determine. But what it means is maybe you have to be certain that a person has a gun before you can draw your weapon, before you can shoot them. Not not kind of, sort of sure, reasonably sure. Maybe that means that we do not, that we actually give police officers in training accurate statistics about the likelihood that they'll be shot. I mean, it is still true that in the United States today, most police officers would never fire their weapon and will never be fired upon. And yet we have a large number of police officers who walk around every day believing that it is us against them and that, you know, they have to make sure they get home safe at the end of the day, even if they've gone home safe at the end of every day for 20 years. 
And of course, it is tragic when police officers are killed. And those are very salient events and they gain a lot of publicity and we all pay attention and we all think about how those people were trying to do a job and they got killed in the commission of doing their job and how problematic that is. But it also isn't statistically likely. And it, it and I don't know the numbers on the officers killed in the line of duty in Ann Arbor. I don't know what they are. I don't know if anyone has ever been killed in Ann Arbor. Certainly doesn't mean that it can't happen in the future. But I do think we have to be realistic about that. And so one of the things that Rosa Brooks did after leaving the police academy, and she actually served as a police officer for some time, is she set up what's called the Center for Innovative Policing at Georgetown. And they have started a program um, and it has been used in many different municipalities. One of the acronyms is ABLE. And it talks about police doing bystander intervention with each other. So there is a case in New Orleans where a sergeant arrested a person. He searched the person for a weapon and then he handcuffed them and he put them in the back of a patrol car. It turns out that even though there were several officers standing around, the sergeant had not, they were, they were, uh, they did not have as much rank as he did. The sergeant had not searched the person carefully enough, which was clear to everyone who watched and he did not handcuff him properly. So while in the back of the patrol car, that suspect was able to retrieve a gun from his clothing, pull it out and shoot and kill one of the officers driving him away. And so, and there are other examples of that, but she uses that to say, and I don't think this is in the book, but uh, she, I've been able to go to seminars and actually have some conversations with her. And she uses that to say that if police would think about sort of that, wall of solidarity is not us against them, but that protecting your fellow officers also protects that, that, that speaking up actually protects your fellow officers and isn't snitching, isn't ratting them out, that that's better for all of us. And so it is almost never the case that problematic police officers have gone undetected. Other police officers know who they are. And in Ann Arbor, several of our commissioners have had conversations with police officers who say, we know who those guys are. We see what they do. But it is problematic for them to say anything about it. They risk retaliation. They risk the lack of support. And so changing that culture that, hey, if you are going to rough up people, eventually somebody's going to film that and you're going to get fired and you're going to get sued and that's going to hurt everybody. And so if we intervene when you do that and say, hey, tone it down a little, then that benefits everyone. But that's not where the culture is now. Could we get there? Absolutely. Do we have to work hard on it? Yes. So the New Orleans Police Department is one of those that sort of um, I think they use the acronym EPIC and they have worked on that and they talk about the reductions in complaints and the reductions in um, the use of force that they have because officers not only sort of intervene with each other, but now expect that and so then behave differently. There's um, an example of a woman, her name is Carrie L. Horn, and she was in Buffalo, New York, and she had a white male partner whom she um, perceived to be choking a black suspect turned out in a very similar way to George Floyd, but this was 15, 20 years ago. And she told him to stop and he wouldn't stop. She told him to get off the guy, he would not. She eventually jumped on her partner's back and wrestled him off the man. And she was fired. She lost her pension. 
She was actually later sued by the other police officer. She lost her home. I believe she was homeless for some time. And because she did what many people perceive to be the right thing. So the consequences of not doing the right thing, are, 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 of challenging other officers are, are, are really um, significant. And so we can't just say, hey, you need to do that without understanding the consequences, right? So we need, the culture needs to change where it is perceived to be protecting other officers when you do that. Carrie L. Horn was in the news recently because I believe that the district attorney or someone went back and reviewed her case and decided she could have her pension or something like that. But, you know, she suffered so greatly for those consequences of feeling like I can't let this police officer kill this man. Um, and so um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, there are many things we could do and we could think about it. Thank you, Harvey, for posting ethic, uh, the, the, the note about EPIC. Um, and so um, Georgetown Center for Innovative Policing worked with the New Orleans PD to develop a program just for them. They were under a consent degree, decree at the time, which means they were in trouble and the federal government had a lot of influence over what they would and would not do. But this has also been implemented in other agencies as well. The person who was the chief in New Orleans, I believe went to Baltimore and he did it there, even though they were not under a consent decree. And there have been other some other medium sized cities um, where they have implemented these programs and they feel like um, that is one of the better ways to change the culture from inside out. I think there are lots and lots of options. And um, I think those things would actually be helpful to police as well. Um, so I, I think civilian oversight, because we have these conversations when nobody else is having them um, with citizens like you guys, with city council, with the police department, we have the ability to move the needle. We don't move it as fast as I would like by any stretch of the imagination. We can't do it alone. We can't do it without the support of people in the community who show up at city council and say, hey, why is this happening? Or why isn't this happening? Or we want this or we want that. We can't do it without the support of partners in the community. Um, like um, Professor Karpiak, who's, who's working with our data and is a criminologist and public health officials who look at policing as a matter of public health. And, um, and so we need lots and lots of people to participate in this process. I think if everybody does a little bit and even just becoming more aware of things that you might want, um, then, then we make progress. And I think in Ann Arbor, we have so much expertise and, and so many resources. Ann Arbor's police department has the ability to be, they have the resources to do more training than many, many other police departments in, in Michigan. Um, and so I think we have a lot of potential here. Um, we have some room for improvement, but I, I absolutely think that, that we can get there. And civilian oversight is not going away. There are more and more agencies cropping up every day in the state of Michigan. Um, so I think there were like five or six of us, maybe just a couple of years ago, but East Lansing is starting. Battle Creek is on its way. I think Grand Rapids was established around the same time as we are. But in cities large and small, um, oversight is beginning to shape up. Um, and we get calls from municipalities all the time, whether it's city council people or activists or other people who are interested in um, talking about how we got started and asking, you know, and looking at our ordinance and asking us things where we had roadblocks. So for example, in our ordinance, the police have 30 days to turn over some documents to us. 
But if they don't, there's no consequences for that. <laughs> and so one of the things we talk about is trying to add some teeth to your ordinance. So for example, you know, if the police don't turn over things in 30 days, there's no one that slaps their hand. There's no one who says, you know, yeah. so I just sort of have to go and complain to city council or to the police chief or to the city administrator and say, hey, here we are again. Here's where I asked for it. Here's where we don't have it. Could we please get things on time? Um, and so um, I, 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 we know it's not going away. We know it's popping up and we try really hard to work with other municipalities who are trying to do oversight as well. Um, because I think most of us think, you know, sort of the more eyes paying attention, the better it is. So um, I know you guys have been asking some questions. Are there more that I can answer? I actually, um, uh, I have two, I have a question and then I, I but first I have a comment. Um, some years ago, I took a course offered by the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office called the Civilian Police Academy. Yes. And it was, really an eye opener for me. And I, um, and it gave me kind of a perspective on the police. I don't think I would have had, and the sheriff's department that I would, wouldn't have gotten any other way. And unfortunately the program didn't really leave me a way to sort of continue my engagement with this, this, you know, the sheriff's office. And I wondered if the ICPOC had actually considered uh, you know, doing something like that to educate the, the citizens about, you know, with direct contact with their, their, their uh, public safety officers. You know? Ann Arbor actually has a program like that. And I believe it stopped during COVID, but um, there is a Citizens Academy that Ann Arbor puts on. It actually goes for several weeks. Um, and so people can engage with it and learn about many aspects of public safety in Ann Arbor almost always there's a ride along included, yeah, things like that. And so I think that's one way that the police try to show their perspective on what they do. I think um, I, I think it would be good to sort of include oversight in that, to talk a little bit about what we do and how we do it and how that impacts policing a little bit. But even if it's not included, I think it is at least one way for people to find out about sort of how the police present what they do in Ann Arbor. And they, they, they probably will start that again whenever we you know, get through vaccinations or the Delta variant or whatever it is. Um, well, but they've I, had it for a while. Yeah, and I, I would just say that, that, like, I did a ride around with a, a dip, with a deputy sheriff's deputy, and she had a degree in theater management <laughs> and had worked as a caterer. I mean, you know, she had a really interesting background, and so it really gave me a different, you know, kind of impression of the sort of person who goes in it. Another question that we the number of people have asked me to ask is uh, about facial recognition software. And I think, yeah. can sure. you to that? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, so as a technology, it's, it's, it's not accurate enough. You know, right. I do statistics and um, I look at sex differences in the brain and I have to be 95% sure that the differences I see are real. And facial recognition software doesn't turn out to be accurate for women, not, not even 50-50, which is 50-50 wouldn't be good enough, but it's not 50-50 for women. It's less for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, people with hats. Um, 
I think um, I, I, I um, oh gosh, there's a wonderful documentary by a young woman, African-American woman who was an art major and she, her facial, her art software wasn't recognizing her face. And she put on a white mask and suddenly it could recognize her and she was like, what? And so she went around and she ended up at MIT and, and I believe that's where she works now. And um, coded bias is what it's called. And um, so, and, and it has much more accurate numbers about for whom facial recognition software is accurate. Um, Ann Arbor, some city council people have hosted some talks on facial recognition software, and it is a topic of discussion at city council. And one of the problems is that there's a fear that it will be used as a shortcut. And we've seen that happen in Detroit, so I think this might be the first lawsuit. There was a robbery of a Shinola store in Detroit, and... The, um, they grabbed a face from the surveillance footage and the Michigan State Police ran it against the database of all driver's licenses and it produced a hit. And, the, um, and this was on 60 Minutes, I believe. And the, the person says, you know, the police department went out and arrested the man in Farmington Hills on his front lawn in front of his two children and his wife because his face looked to them like this driver's license. Well, when they went to the police department, they, they kept him there for some long period of time. Um, he, you know, they had other pictures of him. They were like, is this you, is this you, is this you? And he was like, yes, yes, yes. And this is my driver's license. And they, you know, they showed him a picture of the Shinola store. And he's like, but that's not me. And they're like, well, who is it? He's like, I don't know. It's just some random black guy. And so, you know, it's not accurate enough to be used. It's also super expensive. Um, and so I think there could be questions about privacy. Um, if it were more accurate. But for me, the question stops with, it's just not accurate enough. I mean, it's, it's just not close enough to be able to do that. We know that even AI in cars that detects pedestrians doesn't detect African-Americans as well as it does other people. Um, and so I think um, it's, um, it, it's challenging to think about for a couple of reasons. Now, a lot of people think, well, what about January 6th? A lot of those people were found on Facebook and a lot of those people were found by you know, using facial recognition in that way and trying to match pictures that were grabbed from the scene with pictures on uh, Facebook and other things. But there were also a significant number of people who were found through other kinds of other detective work, um, not using photos and not using that technology. And so I think the worry is that it wouldn't be used um, just to corroborate, that it would be used as it was in Detroit as a shortcut, that you would just, you know, run pictures through and, you know, people are on Facebook, there's tons of pictures of us, the Michigan State Police has every driver's license photo, passport photos, if you participate in TSA pre-check, fingerprints are out there. So you, there's lots of data out in the world and um, it can be used, but it's just not very accurate yet. And so for now, that's my primary concern. It's just not accurate enough to be used. Um, it's not even close to 50-50 for most people. Um, and then I think if it became very accurate, I, I think I would have questions about privacy and about, um, you know, the ways in which it was being used. So it's not, so the AACD isn't using it at all. So what AAPD says is that they don't have the technology. So their body cam footage that they wear and the dash cam footage they have does not also do facial recognition. Now, does AAPD have the ability to send a photo to the Michigan State Police and ask them to use their technology? They do. Cool. And at this point, they have not said that they are 
would not do that. And so that's where we are. And so um, there are several members of council who are trying to write an ordinance to talk about the use of AAPD's involvement in facial recognition, no matter who owns the technology. So, so AAPD doesn't have its own technology. It could avail itself of Michigan State's police's technology, which is what Detroit did. Um, I was curious about um, uh, the, how you think, I mean, you spoke and you said that city council is supportive. Um, I mean, well, can you go in a little more deeply into the relationship between the ICPOC and city council? Sure. I think um, in the beginning, it was a really um, tricky one <clears throat> because they had voted to have oversight, but oversight is messy. We ask a lot of questions. There's some potential for some embarrassment. And our perception in the first year or so was just that city council hoped we wouldn't embarrass them or anyone else. And we thought, gee, we just have to set up processes for how do you even do complaint review? Like who would be in the room? Who would get access to information? What kind of access could we have? We're not going to embarrass anybody. Um, but I think the task force process had been so fraught that they were just leery of us. I think after some time, it became clear that, um, you know, the work we did was probably not going to be inherently embarrassing. And I think we got a little bit more assistance. We have two council liaisons. So we started off with Jane Lum and Ali Ramlawi, and now we have Lynn Song and Ali Ramlawi. <coughs> and um, their job is, I think, defined by sort of going back to council and reporting on what we do. Um, there are, we definitely ask for their assistance. Like when Jane was on council, she had a lot of knowledge about budget stuff. And so we could ask about those kinds of things. And Lynn is pretty involved as well in terms of um, offering support. She shows up to retreats that we do when we do strategic planning meetings, things like that. And she can talk from a council perspective about ways in which council can be useful or not, or things that they can help with and things that they can't. Um, I think, and we have good working relationships with most members of council. And so there are times when things come up to city council and they reach out to us and ask us, what is this, what is that? And we could provide them with some information or show them where to find information about something that might be coming up. Um, for example, Howard Lazarus had a proposal to add a, uh, there was a, there was kind of a big controversy because it became clear the police were not giving us documents in any kind of timely fashion at all. We would wait literally six months to get things. And at first we just thought, oh, they're new. Everyone kept saying, you're new, things take a while. We have to get used to you existing. We have crimes to solve. We don't have time to give you paperwork. And we were, you know, it took a while before we started getting salty and saying, it's, this is also part of your job. Give us the paperwork. And so we'd go to council. And so Howard Lazarus said, hey, we propose to add a person to the police department whose job it will be to interact with you and give you the paperwork you need. And that sort of sounded good, except when you read the person's job description, he had 10 things to do in his job and we were number 10 on that list. So we were one tenth of his responsibility. And so we could kind of say to council, you know, you guys gave the police department a bunch of money for this position, but this guy, you know, he has a lot of other things to do. Um, and, and so those are, you know, kinds of things we can say. And 
we recently got permission from the mayor a few months ago to actually look at the police budget and to make some comments on that and to ask about, you know, why is money being spent this way and that way. So public pressure, I think, changes the way city council, you know, engages with us. And I don't mean like there was direct public pressure on the mayor to do that. I think George Floyd happening and the protests that happened all summer was a big thing for council and many of them sort of changed positions because of that, not changed, but evolved maybe on their interactions because of that. Like for example, every month on the first city council meeting of the month, I usually go and address city council and I just give them an update. And I had wanted to do that for some time and I was told, no, you can't do that. And so I said, well, why wouldn't you want to hear from us? And the first answer was no, if you do it, every other council will want to do it. And then after George Floyd, I said, so are you really going to tell me that you don't want to hear from police oversight at this particular time? in the world. And they said, okay, you can come. And I said, well, I want to come every month. I want to update the city every month on what we're doing. And so then we got to do that. And so they said, fine, you can come. And I'm really fast. I'm only five minutes most of the time, really. I think they give me 10 and I'm usually like five or six minutes. And sometimes I'm just saying update, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes I'm talking about current events. You know, I'm saying this is the day such and such was killed. And this is the day something happened in Ann Arbor. And that relates to us today because why? Um, and so city council, I think, got a little bit more used to hearing from us. Um, Frances Tadora Hargraves um, subbed in for me once and she was talking about art fair and you know um, what armed responses would look like at art fair and asking questions about that because that was on the minds of a lot of people. You know, what kind of policing is gonna be there? How many of those people are gonna be armed? You know, you know that you can't shoot people in a crowd at, at art fair, you can't shoot into a crowd. So why do they have guns? And so these are, so, you know, we, we now have these conversations sort of with council and I think they got a little bit more used to us that way. So I think we have a good working relationship. There are some council people with whom we work we work much more closely with Elizabeth Nelson and Travis Rodina and Lynn Song and Ali Ramlawi because um, they are uh, the four liaisons who are involved in it. Uh, like if we have nominations for people to serve on our commission to send those up to the rest of council because of the Human Rights Commission connection. And um, they make themselves available to answer questions. So there are times when I'll ask. So for example, I heard about the Georgetown Innovation Innovative Policing Program called ABLE and I I said, wow, this looks amazing, but I'm the, maybe the police will tell me this is stupid. So I was able to um, call the sheriff and I said, you know, Jerry, I know you're really busy, but could you just read this link? Can you tell me what you think of this program? I'd like to talk about it in Ann Arbor, but is this reasonable? And he was like, oh, Lisa, we're already doing it. We're starting next week. Goodbye, it's great. <laughs> and so then I could talk to some council members and say, hey, there's this thing. Could you at least read about it and think about it? And could we maybe start talking about maybe our police doing it? The, the training is free, but that doesn't really mean free because police officers need to get paid for the training they do. So there's training man hours in that. So we have to talk about those kinds of things. And I, I think they've been receptive. We haven't proposed anything you know, insane. We're mostly talking about training and changing culture and how do we do that? And when the things we're talking about are things that are echoed by their constituents, then they certainly pay more attention. And I think some of them also had some police transformation as part of their platform when they were running. And so they have some intuitive kind of affinity for hearing about those things. You know, the, the your comment about um, one of the platforms, one of the candidates for city council was transformation. It reminds me of a question, uh, and we're kind of getting to the end of time. So I, I actually have two questions on my own. I don't think, I don't see anything else in the chat. Um, and the first 
question is, you know, what do you think we as citizens you know, and voters can do? Do you have suggestions of things that we can do? And the second question is, I wonder, do you have a vision of what a perfect police force or what a, what a really good police force would be? Yes, <laughs> yes, I wanna do that one. Um, I think as someone alluded to in the chat, it would have that, um, that, 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 that service mentality. It would be comprised of people who had that service mentality. It'd be comprised of people from your community so there's some integration in the community so that the people you're policing are the people that you know or the people your family knows or your kids' teachers or those people. So it would be embedded within the community. It would be transparent. It would be open. Mistakes will be made. There will be things that will happen with which we will not be happy, but they would be acknowledged and there would be a good faith effort to correct those. Um, there would not be hiding behind you know, uh, policies or what the union will or won't allow. Um, there would be transparency in terms of paperwork and processes and accountability in terms of those things. And I think, you know, we would, all people would feel relaxed around the police that you would see, you know, kind of that, it's mythical for some people, but that, that 1950s model of officer friendly, that when you saw a police officer, you could trust your kid to go to that person and get help. You wouldn't worry that they would put your kid up against a car or, or be rude to them. Um, you know, my own child had an experience in Ann Arbor where he saw a person in trouble and she appeared to be um, not drunk, but um, either having a, a psychological problem or a health problem where she was staggering. He didn't know she was having low blood sugar or something. And he saw a police officer. He went to them and he, and he said, can you help her? And the, the guy literally said, that's not my job. And it crushed my son, but it changed his, her, his perspective on policing in Ann Arbor. He was like, huh. So he literally called, I was teaching. He called me. I was in the classroom. It, he called a, a social services agency person that he knew and said, what should I do? And he literally followed that woman until he was able to get her help. And, but he was incensed. He was like, how is this possible? So we'd like police officers to help people. We'd like... We'd like us to feel that they were going to help people all the time. And we have police officers who will help people now, but we want to think that all police officers will do that. We want to think that they'll do that regardless of how much money we look like we have, our ethnicity, our gender. We don't want to worry that police are going to hit on us. That um, I literally had a situation where a police officer pulled me over for speeding and I'm sure I was speeding. And um, he asked me out on a date and my passenger said, absolutely not. She's not going out with you. And he was like, well, here's your ticket then. And she was like, were you going to like get let her off with a warning if she went out with you? And you just don't want to be in that position. And, and my story is pretty mild compared with other stories that women talk about, right? So you want to feel comfortable as a woman. You want to feel comfortable as a child, as a person of color, as a, as a homeless person, as a young person, as a teenager, that you're not going to be stereotyped in some kind of way. And so I think that'd be my perfect police department where we knew that there were people um, that not only were expected to help us, but that was that that's what they wanted to do and that that's what they were able to do effectively and that we would know what their policies were and that when there was an error, which there will be one because police are human like everybody else, that they would own up to it and talk about how they'd work to correct it. And that would be like my, woo, that's the dream. Yeah, I guess I, I you know, I, I kind of add to that. Uh, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about the police and she was like, oh, they're all you know, terrible or whatever. And I said, well, you know, did either of us tell our kids to, what an honorable profession it was and how they should go into it? And of course we didn't. And so I'm sort of 
part of me is like, and this happened to me after the civilian police academy. I was like, you know, the people I saw, you know, teaching us about what they do and everything, they were really impressive on it, you yeah. know? And um, uh, so I wasn't quite there saying I would recommend my kids go into it, but I think that's a, that's a thing. I mean, I had a similar experience. The people who were training us on the de-escalation training, you know, we worked with them for six hours, I think. And I said, you know, these two guys really believe in this. They, they really right. believe what they're saying. Cause you know, we had, they were lecturing, they were giving examples, they were asking us questions, we were asking them questions. So there were lots of opportunities for them to slip up if they were faking it. And I, I really came away with the sense that they believed in the promise of this sort of de-escalation training. And I was like, you know, if we can have 50 of those, 125 right. of those, and I think a little bit of an age gap too. We have an older force and then a younger force and we don't have many in the middle. And so I think there's a little gap somewhere, not all across the board about how you see the world. And so, you know, I, I do feel encouraged by that. Um, I think we have some good officers and I think we have some who need improvement. And I think um, probably just the culture in Ann Arbor could stand to be improved, but that, you know, it's a, it's a long-term goal, so. Yeah. Well, and so the last question, what, is, what can we as voters do? I think, um, you know, to the degree that you can stand it, pay attention <laughs> to oversight. Um, you know, if you're ever able to watch our meetings or watch the first, um, you know, sort of city council meeting of the month when we're giving an update or email us questions, we, we all answer email. Um, we have an administrator whom you can call on the phone if you ever have questions about oversight, but encourage people to complain to oversight and not to the police. It's super, super helpful. And just the process is very different for people when they do that. Um, I think, and, and just pay attention to council. Let your council members know that, you know, you want to see some transparency. You want to see more information. Why is it, for example, that, you know, you guys don't know, you know, what your police officer's complaint history is? You know, what if we learned that of 125 police officers in Ann Arbor, only 100, you know, only two of them have complaints against them. People would feel better about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it could, you know, it's not to say that you'll find out, oh my gosh, it's terrible. We might find out that it's a fantastic department and people would feel comforted by that, but we don't know either way. And so just basic kinds of things um, that you might see in other cities' dashboards that we don't have in Ann Arbor. And so um, I think lots of times we don't think about these things until something happens. You, right. know, we had, um, you know, we had a mom who had a problem when her kid had an accident and she just was horrified by the police treatment. And so, but until that point, she said, you know, I never, you know, police were great. Um, and so I think it's hard for us sometimes to think about these things in the abstract, but if you can, you know, let your, your council member know and, and certainly ply us with questions, email us, give us comments at any time. Well, thank you for the, this, this was just like a torrent of information and just <laughs> great. And um, I thank you so much for talking. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, so happy to, to come and talk to your audience and so thankful for the work that you all do at the League of Women Voters. Thank you. So everybody, thank you for coming. Thank you, Lisa. It was just great. Thank you so much. Um, uh, have a great weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening. We would like to thank current members of the League of Women Voters for your support. If you're not yet a member, consider joining the League to support the essential work of protecting the right of every citizen to vote. Check out our website, lwvwashtenaw.org. That's lwvwashtenaw.org.
enaw.org for how to join. There you will also find links to videos of this and many other presentations on topics important to every citizen. Stay safe, stay well, and stay informed and active in your government.